Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with the president and CEO of the Children's Hunger Alliance here in Columbus. Highball Halloween is coming up Saturday in the Arena District. I'll have details about that in about 12 minutes. In about 20 minutes, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Kevin Landers covers topics that include anti-hazing legislation that is now in effect in Ohio, a move to update Ohio's statute of limitations, and the ongoing debate about abortion rights. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with the vice president of the American Gas Association about the coming winter heating bills in Ohio. They could be much higher this year. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Judy Mobley, who is the president and CEO of the Children's Hunger Alliance. How are you? Good morning, Dave. I'm great, thanks. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the Children's Hunger Alliance is. Well, Children's Hunger Alliance is a nonprofit organization that is a statewide organization uh, founded in 1970. And our mission, uh, simply put as I could make it, is just to provide meals for kids across the state who simply don't have enough uh, food to live a healthy life. This is uh, always a a complicated situation, and and it seems like it's always worse than what a lot of people think it is. You're you're absolutely right. And, of course, the the situation we find ourselves still in uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic uh, has exasperated the problem uh, to the point of, We've actually increased in Ohio from about 500,000 kids that are food insecure to over 700,000, or one in four. Uh, so it is, a, it is a, a serious problem in our state and really across the country. And the pandemic certainly hasn't helped any. No, it has not. And again, as you find, you know, families uh, that really were not necessarily needing our help, but were borderline, we certainly saw them as there were issues with um, jobs being lost, their companies maybe shutting down for periods of time where we saw a lot of people that needed help that really never did before. So again, it just added to the problem. And the problem of hunger, too, goes deeper than just a, a money issue for the families. It has a lot to do with where they live and what sorts of food resources are available to them in their neighborhood. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's interesting. One of the things that we did during um, uh, COVID and we continue to do this past summer, uh, we started a mobile feeding uh, project, which allowed us to basically rent vans and take meals to kids in parks, uh, outside swimming pools, you know, outside schools and parking lots of libraries that may be closed. Um, so you're absolutely right. It's very important for us to think about taking the meals where the kids can get to. Uh, this past summer, we were in a couple counties that, but for our mobile meals, um, there would not have been a site for kids to go to. So it's a really a big problem in rural Ohio. Talking with Judy Mobley, president and CEO of the Children's Hunger Alliance. Is there a, a, an area of the state where the situation is worse than elsewhere? Well, I would say if we look at the Cleveland area, they obviously have the highest rate of poverty for children. Um, But there's a lot of help in the Cleveland area. So one of the spots that we've focused on a lot in the last couple years is southeast Ohio. Uh, Again, rural population, not a lot of industry to uh, donate and, and help. So southeast Ohio has um, gotten a lot of our attention, but 
Um, there are pockets, again, across the state. So to name one uh, is a little difficult, but we, we definitely have spent a good bit of time helping in Southeast Ohio. It's so interesting. A couple of years ago when now Cincinnati Bengals quarterback Joe Burrow won the Heisman, during his speech, he talked about the problem of food insecurity in southeast Ohio and the food pantry down there received, I think it was well over half a million, close to a million dollars in donations across the country after that. Yeah, that was amazing. I happened to be watching that like so many others and uh, it gives you goosebumps that somebody who, you know, he obviously didn't experience it personally, but he experienced it through those he was around and cared enough to, to make that impact. Um, we've been fortunate just recently, we've done a program with the Bengals uh, in some boys and girls clubs in the Cincinnati area. So um, they continue to give, uh, give back for sure. It sure is powerful when you get somebody who's well-known and likable and, uh, and relevant who, who just uh, has that as a passion, and I know his family does as well. Right. I believe his mother maybe is an elementary school teacher in the southeast part of our state, so I'm sure she sees it every day with the kids that she's working with. Now, you are embarking on a campaign coming up here uh, along with help from the Central Ohio Toyota dealerships. It's the Lunch Money Challenge. What is that about? Uh, well, thank you. We are so excited that Central Ohio Toyota Dealerships has uh, decided to work with Children's Hunger Alliance and take up this challenge. Uh, Lunch Money Challenge is really an opportunity for everyone to make a difference. So the premise behind it is um, give up your lunch money for a day and think about kids that are doing without every day and help us feed those kids. So we've got a little sticker that says, you know, I fed a child today. The average um, American spends $11.40 on uh, lunch every day. And if you think about, if all of your listeners, if everybody that comes into contact with Central Ohio Toyota dealership um, over the next month or so would even consider making that donation or something else, uh, no amount is too small, and we never turn down larger donations. All that really does is let us reach more kids, and uh, there's never enough. So we can have uh, the best year ever as far as fundraising, and we still didn't get to all the kids that need our help. So that's really what the Lunch Money Challenge is all about, Um, just really letting individuals reach down into their uh, own hearts and pocketbooks and make a donation to help us feed kids. When you provide meals for kids, what is the form of it? How do you go about doing that? Sure. Um, So we do it in a lot of different ways. I talked already briefly about summer feeding, which is a huge need um, in Ohio. But we also help daycare centers, uh, daycare homes, and after-school programs um, to make sure that those kids are getting healthy meals. And then we also started, again, throughout the pandemic, uh, a program to feed kids on the weekends and when their schools are out on break because so many kids rely on their schools uh, many times for their only food, for their breakfast and their lunch. And then we try to step in in an after-school program and make sure they have an evening meal. Well, then it's, you know, Thanksgiving or holiday break or spring break, and there's no federal nutrition program to help kids during those breaks. So we saw that as a gap that needed to be filled, and that's what we've been working to do. 
that structure where they get a meal every day at school or, as you mentioned, in after-school programs and the pandemic when the lockdown was going on and then when schools were learning through distance learning, there was all kinds of problems with trying to make sure kids were getting fed. Yeah, and honestly, that was our first thought is now what? Um, I will say kudos to schools. Many, many, many schools did, uh, you know, just above and beyond to try to make sure that their kids had an opportunity to get food from them. Um, Again, as we think about rural Ohio, that becomes more difficult. But I know, for example, we were able to help in Meigs County, uh, very rural county, very high-need county, but they were able to provide kids meals um, once a week with a bag of ready-to-serve meals, and that was allowable because of some of the waivers that USDA allowed. But um, everybody was just looking for how are we going to do it, what what fits best for the kids to be able to get the food and to keep them um, keep them fed because it was a huge problem when they weren't going to school every day. When the holidays arrive, you know, with Thanksgiving and Christmas, does that present uh, new challenges or different ways for you to do what you do? Well, it absolutely does. And again, that's one of the newer things that we've been doing. So um, if we are working with a school and they would like us to provide their kids with a box of meals for that Thanksgiving break, then we will surely do that. Um, Excited that we're just getting ready to kick off something called Adopt-A-School. We had a local company step up and give us funding for the next two years, Champion Companies. And uh, we are going to do Adopt-A-School where they will give us the money to feed their kids at that one school for weekends and all school breaks. So um, that's just something that we're looking at, a new novel way to be able to fund this exact program we're talking about, weekend and school breaks. Talking with Judy Mobley, she's president and CEO of the Children's Hunger Alliance here in Columbus. And uh, again, we mentioned that uh, the Central Ohio Toyota dealers are hooking up with your agency to provide the uh, lunch money challenge. And uh, and there is a website for this as well. It's lunchmoneychallenge.org. And I guess folks can give through that. Yes, they can. Uh-huh. They can give there. Um, and again, that would be the best for this particular program so that we can, uh, you know, obviously track um, how much money we got through this Central Ohio uh, Toyota dealership challenge. Um, This is taking place when we're all thinking about Ohio State football and Michigan week, and there's lots of different challenges going on. Um, What better challenge to take than the lunch money challenge and help us all feed kids uh, right here in our state? It's excellent. That's lunchmoneychallenge.org. Anything else you'd like to add? No, I I thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about our work. Um, Many times we all get wrapped up in our own lives, and uh, if we're fortunate enough that food has not been an issue for us or our families, you sometimes forget that there are kids that really go home and don't have anything in their cupboard or anything in their refrigerator, and it's a hard uh, fact to face. Um, We have volunteer opportunities. People could go to our website at childrenshungerlines.org and look at those opportunities. Come help us pack meals. If you want to see firsthand 
the good that this money would do. Uh, we'd love to have you uh, come to our warehouse and pack meals. We'd love to have you come to a site visit and see the work in action. Um, at Thanksgiving, we'll have volunteers come with us to pass out meals. So um, when you see it firsthand, you know it matters. And I just uh, thank everybody for their willingness to consider being part of this Lunch Money Challenge and helping us feed more kids. That's tremendous. Uh, Judy Mobley, again, president and CEO of the Children's Hunger Alliance. Thanks so much for the information and good luck with the campaign. Thank you. Have a great day. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Betsy Pandora, who is the Executive Director of the Short North Alliance. How are you? I'm doing well, Dave. It's so great to be with you this morning. Good to talk to you. It's been a while since we've talked to you. A lot has happened because a lot hasn't happened in the last year and a half, I guess. But how are things going in the short north? Well, you know, our community really is working very hard to rebound like many um, uh, as we're transitioning um, through the various stages of the pandemic. Um, uh, You know, as as I know you are well aware, the short north has an incredible small business community and and things have um, certainly challenged small businesses. But if the last 18 plus months have taught us anything it is that people here in our community have an incredible um, spirit of perseverance and um, while they like many are experiencing issues related to supply chain or labor shortage or um, you know just the the constant evolution of what's necessary to keep people healthy and safe um, it is a community that um, is seeing visitors come back again and uh, is one where we do really feel confident about the future. It's uh, such a deal because, you know, the short north is so into connectivity, you know, a close-knit community and people out and about, and it must have hit that area as hard as anywhere. Well, you know, in many ways, it's brought our local community together. And if you think about how the Short North Arts District has developed uh, in recent years, a huge segment of our market and um, customer base actually come from out-of-town visitors who are coming through to Columbus, um, through the convention center, coming through to stay at the, you know, over a thousand hotel beds that have been developed recently. Um, And we also see a really large population coming through of daytime workers traditionally, whether that's through downtown or the Ohio State University. So to not have um, substantial tourism business taking place for such an extended period of time and to fundamentally change the way in which people are working and doing that more from home has shifted the market of the neighborhood and in many ways has shifted it decidedly towards our local community. And a lot of times small business owners get into it for the passion, not the money. And uh, so this has got to be a difficult time for them. It is um, so very challenging, but I think that what we've also seen is an incredible amount of ingenuity that has 
um, come out of the pandemic. And what we've also seen is, you know, trends that were maybe um, imminent, but maybe, you know, uh, a little further away in the rear view came well into the forefront and and kind of in many ways forced people to um, evolve more quickly than maybe they would have. So with curbside ordering and the prevalence of online ordering, maybe not necessarily being um, such a significant focus for a small business, those things have really become strong focuses. And and we've seen people really evolve to accommodate this hybrid model now. And for folks who have not been down in that area lately, is the development still going on with some of the, the major developments happening? Well, you know, right prior to the onset of the pandemic, we saw the completion of the 30 plus million dollar renovation of the High Street Streetscape. We saw several major development projects um, really wrap up and come to completion. So there, um, you know, there there is not, is, you know, the substantial um, amount of construction like maybe uh, folks had experienced before um, we then experienced a pandemic. We do have um, a gorgeous incredible new um, addition to the Hilton Hotel that is, um, if you haven't been down recently, I mean, it it is, you know, striking how it is changing the skyline for our city, and it is very much so up and out of the ground. Um, But save for that and a handful of maybe smaller projects, um, you know, it is is, um, not so much a construction zone these days. And I wanted to ask about a long-standing tradition for better than 30 years, uh, the first Saturday of the month, the gallery hop. That's going on, right? Absolutely. And, and throughout the pandemic, we were one of the very first events in Columbus to pivot to go to an online virtual format. Um, uh, we continued doing gallery hops virtually up until June of this year. And since June, we have been back and in person. And it's been incredible to see um, the community come back out to experience art on the first Saturday of every month. Um, and and we do see people um, coming back out to enjoy um, being together and being a part of a community again. It's, it's really kind of a special thing to see. Now, that's a lot of walking along the street and into shops. So are, are you seeing, for the most part, people wearing masks while they're walking around on the street, or what's going on with that? Well, you know, the the um, city of Columbus has a requirement um, for um, certain types of businesses and in certain situations um, to be masked. Many of our small businesses, particularly our small retail shops, um, even when orders requiring such were eased, chose to keep that in place because of, you know, sort of the close quarters of some of their businesses and in many ways to keep their employees as safe as possible. Um, uh, but just walking on, you know, out on High Street um, at any given moment, it is it really is a variable mix right now of, of people who are, are choosing to do that in open air and folks that, that may not be. Talking with Betsy Pandora, Executive Director of the Short North Alliance. Speaking of masks, how do you like that segue? <laughs> it's a pretty good one. <laughs> uh, the Highball Halloween is coming up this Saturday, October 23rd, and it's back for real again. Yeah, we are back 
and in person. You know, we we were able to present an incredible virtual event last year, but boy, does it feel great to to be dusting off those costumes and and getting ready to to be together with folks again for Highball Halloween. Um, we are changing our location for the event this year um, again to accommodate the highest standards in public health safety to support all in our community. Um, uh, so we are pleased to be taking the event to Express Live and partnering with the great folks there to put forward um, uh, something that everyone can feel uh, great attending. Um, uh, but it is really wonderful to, to get back to being in person. Express Live right next to Huntington Park and Nationwide Arena. That's right. For people who don't know what Highball Halloween is, uh, give us a quick description of what it is. Well, Highball is the nation's most elaborate costume party, and for 13 years it has taken place um, uh, traditionally on High Street in the Short North. In our 14th year, we will be doing it at Express Live. Um, uh, Folks come out in costume and can compete to be in our public costume contest presented by Out of the Closet, Um, or they come in droves to see the White Castle Costume Couture Fashion Show, which is really the centerpiece of the Highball event. Um, We engage some of the most talented fashion and costume designers from not only Columbus, but from around um, the region and throughout the state to compete to create over-the-top couture creations um, that um, will absolutely take your breath away. And um, we also feature um, uh, artists and entertainment as part of the event, but the spectacle of seeing everyone in their costume is is absolutely a special component of it, too. And this has a kind of a natural connection to the fashion industry in Columbus, which is significant. That's right. I mean, Columbus has the third largest fashion and design workforce in the country. Um, we're, we're number three to New York and Los Angeles. And, you know, many of those folks, um, as part of the creative class, call the Short North Art District home. So it's wonderful to um, give people the opportunity to be creative um, uh, and to be creative in support of a wonderful cause. Highball um, helps to underwrite many needed programs and services um, that our nonprofit organization provides to our community. Um, and so you can feel good attending the event, um, not only because you're dressed great, but because you're being there helps to support everyone. How many folks will be there, Betsy, and what about any uh, COVID-related protocols? Well, part of why we chose to do the event at Express Live um, was so that we could uh, do it this year with the highest public health safety standards in place, and our partners at Express Live have been doing that exceptionally well. Um, Proof of vaccination is required to attend the event. Instructions are available at highballcolumbus.org for how you can um, uh, make that documentation available. Masks will be required, and if ever there was an event uh, that required you to have a mask, Highball certainly seems like the one that um, is appropriate for that. And the capacity for the event um, is somewhat limited this year. Traditionally, we would see between 10 and 15,000 a night for Highball um, to keep with um, social distancing guidelines and public health and safety standards. We're limiting our tickets to 4,000 attendees this year and just on one night. Uh, Our VIP ticket sales uh, are already already sold out, and um, we're encouraging folks to get a hold of their general admission tickets as soon as they can if they plan to attend. Okay, and that's again Saturday, October 23rd from 6 to 11 p.m., and that's at Express Live in the Arena District. Uh, Anything else you'd like to add, Betsy? Everything about this year's event is available on highball 
smallcolumbus.org. We are pleased to also be presenting uh, performances by Mojo Flow, the Hoodoo Soul Band, and uh, the Nacho Street Band, which is the Nationwide Children's Hospital Street Band. And that's a group of first responders, physicians, nurses, and other healthcare workers who perform in an amazing 20-piece brass um, uh, brass group that then uh, generates proceeds to go to support the Ronald McDonald House. It's great to get these pieces of normalcy, even the sort of abnormal normalcy <laughs> back, right? <laughs> well, you know, not that highball by any means is normal, but right. it, is, um, it is exciting to be able to get back together with community members, to, to see people again, to um, be a part of celebrating things again after being so confined for so long. And we feel particularly special that we're able to, to do that this year. And it means probably more than ever to come out and support the event this year. Betsy Pandora, again joining us. She's the executive director of the Short North Alliance. Uh, one more time, the website. Uh, everything is available at highballcolumbus.org. Great. Good luck with the event, and uh, thanks for talking to us. Thanks so much. We can't wait to see everybody out on Saturday, October 23rd. How do you know if you or a loved one is at risk of problem gambling? By knowing the signs, such as borrowing money, hiding unpaid debts, bragging about wins, or just plain irritability. Sound familiar? Get Set Before You Bet is Ohio's initiative to help keep gambling safe and responsible for everyone. How does it work? Just visit BeforeYouBet.org to learn more and take the responsible gambling quiz. Together, we can keep gambling safe and responsible in Ohio. This message brought to you by Ohio for Responsible Gambling. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Kevin Landers from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. It's a change years in the making. We talk with Colin Wyant's mother the day the law named after her son went into effect. And new data is available on the state's COVID-19 dashboard. We'll explain what's different about the way the state tracks cases. Thank you for joining us for Face the State. I'm Kevin Landers. Tracy Townsend has the morning off. Collins Law went into effect in the state of Ohio. It makes hazing a felony and holds universities accountable. The law has been years in the making. 10TV's Brittany Bailey has been tracking its progress. For the mother of Colin Wyant, all roads have been leading here since November 12, 2018. That's the day Colin died after a hazing incident at Ohio University. Painful, unexpected, long. It would be more than two years later before the law bearing her son's name was introduced again in the state legislature, another four months before it was signed, and three more before it finally became law. Today I woke up not knowing how I would feel today, and I was surprised that today I woke up um, really happy and joyful about this. 
Um, I just keep thinking that if Colin had received education on hazing that students now will be receiving because of Colin's law, that he would be alive today. It all comes after another Ohio College student, Stone Foltz, died after a hazing incident at Bowling Green State University. Supporters of this law hope his death will be the last. Some people have said that you know hazing is a longtime tradition. Um, and I think today, well, with all due respect, that tradition ends. There really is no, cannot be any tolerance for hazing. Uh, anybody who's associated with hazing needs to be off the campus. Gone. Collins Law makes hazing a felony and failure to report a misdemeanor. Colleges and universities must provide anti-hazing education and training and be transparent about any hazing that does happen. While other states have you know, felony penalties uh, relating to hazing, I'm not sure that, that any of them have quite the breadth of the education, training, awareness, expectations, responsibilities uh, associated with a college life. For Kathleen Wyant, the journey certainly doesn't end here. She's already lobbying on Capitol Hill for a federal law. It's all I have to do. It's the most important thing I have to do. So, yes, I, I won't give up on that. I'll be working on that till the day I die for sure. Brittany Bailey, 10 TV News. The higher ed plan for schools in our state is pretty comprehensive. If you'd like to read more about it, we'll link you to the info on 10TV.com. Maybe you still have questions or concerns about the COVID-19 vaccine. You're not alone. 10 TV's Tracy Townsend talked with a local medical expert who once said no to the vaccine, but now says yes and says you should too really, really tired and just drained. Natasha Rose wasn't vaccinated when she got COVID-19, and she's a healthcare worker, a clinical nurse manager at Ohio Health Riverside. The headache and the body aches were kind of awful. And then when I couldn't taste anything, I was like, oh my God, like this is real. This is what it, I just knew. The wife and mother of four had to quarantine. Her husband got COVID too. Their kids were in the clear, but Natasha's position on vaccination, even with her employer's rule on vaccination, was not. I wasn't in a rush to go get it. And then I had heard, you know, you hear half a dozen of one, this or that. I mean, it's just like, I feel like if you're for it, you hear all the things to go get it. If you're against it, you hear all the things why you shouldn't go get it. You really need to uh, respectfully engage everybody and not really to have divisions between vaccinated and unvaccinated. Ohio Health Infectious Disease Specialist Dr. Joseph Gastaldo was on the front lines of the pandemic from the start and worries now that far too many people don't have access to reliable information. So really, um, unless you are really following this closely, which most people are not, it's very easy to go down a hole of misinformation and really uh, have seeds of hesitancy. The CDC and medical experts point to three widely available vaccines against COVID-19 that are safe, effective, and reduce your risk of severe illness. Getting the virus was a wake-up call, but Natasha Rose says finding answers versus misinformation was just as important. I'm a healthcare professional and I'm not vaccinated. And so I just felt like I just needed my questions answered. The state of Ohio is hoping more teenagers and young adults will get vaccinated this week. The portal opened for Ohioans' Vax to School program. Ohioans 12 to 25 years old can win a $10,000 scholarship or a grand prize $100,000 scholarship. 150 people will win the $10,000 scholarship and five will win the grand prizes. You have to enroll online. Go to 10TV.com for instructions. There is no deadline or drawing date for the winners at this time.
The Ohio Department of Health added more information to the COVID-19 online dashboard. Vaccination rates are now broken down by age groups. You can also track how many Ohioans receive booster shots. And the new daily case numbers now include reinfections. All of this as we are starting to see a decline in the number of cases. 10TV's Lindsay Mills explains why doctors say that decline is no reason to let our guard down. I think we're all hoping that indeed uh, this is the last great wave. Even though Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff from the Ohio Department of Health says it appears that Delta-driven wave has moved into a reclining phase, we need to stay vigilant. As a doctor, I don't hang my hat too much on uh, what I hope will be. I prefer to look at the evidence and the science. And Dr. Vanderhoff says that science shows vaccines are effective in preventing severe outcomes of the illness, severe outcomes like hospitalizations and deaths that doctors are seeing in unvaccinated pregnant women. There is a 70 percent increased risk of death when you have COVID-19 and you're pregnant. And that number alone is terrifying for those of us who take care of pregnant people in Ohio. Which is why their call for pregnant women to get vaccinated is urgent. In August, we had the highest number of women die from COVID because while they were pregnant and that just should not happen in this country, in this world, in this time. Dr. Lisa Egbert is the president of the Ohio Medical Association. She says to get through this pandemic, it's not just up to expecting moms. It's up to everyone eligible to get vaccinated. While I would love for this to be the end um, or, you know, say sayonara to all of this, I think we need to recognize that we are at 70 percent as a nation and we maybe need to be closer to 90 percent to have real protection from whatever is coming next. If you need a driver's test, chances are it will be weeks before you can make an appointment. Still to come on Face the State, we look into the reasons behind the wait. Plus, hear from both sides of the abortion debate in Ohio as lawmakers take up the so-called trigger law. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Kevin Landers, courtesy of 10TV. And welcome back. Abortion is a hot topic right now nationwide. A federal judge halted the most restrictive abortion law in the U.S. Here in Ohio, lawmakers are discussing their own abortion bill. 10TV's Richard Solomon has more from advocates on both sides discussing where the state stands. It's a fight that some say won't end anytime soon. The fight for choice and the fight for life. And these two say they're in it for the long haul. Recent actions by the Biden administration ended a ban on abortion referrals at federally funded clinics. For Lauren Blavelt Copeland, it's a huge victory. I- right to bodily autonomy, being able to make your own personal medical decision about continuing a pregnancy is is vital. It's a human right. Blavelt Copeland is the vice president of government affairs and public advocacy for Planned Parenthood of Ohio. They receive those funds. When the rule went into place under the Trump administration, it couldn't have happened at a worse time. During the pandemic, access to reproductive health care like birth control and STI testing and treatment uh, was less accessible because those through Title X weren't accessible to over 60 percent of uh, Ohioans served through the Title X program. But this isn't the only issue at stake. 
Right now in Ohio, Senate Bill 123 is on the table. The bill would trigger a ban on abortions in Ohio if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. Ali Frazier with Ohio Right to Life says it could protect the lives of the unborn and the mother. We don't believe that women need abortion. We believe that women deserve better than that. And we believe that it's time to end abortion in our state. The bill has attracted much attention at the state house. Just a day before the bill's first hearing, people who were pro-choice protesting the bill. A fight that won't end anytime soon. And these two determined to see it through. We are committed to not just making abortion illegal, but making it unthinkable. My human rights, my human dignity as a person to be able to make my own personal decision about continuing a pregnancy or not. In Columbus, Richard Solomon, 10TV News. The next Senate committee hearing will be Senate Bill 123, and it could be discussed as early as October 19th. When it comes to the crime of rape, survivors in Ohio are not permitted to bring their cases after 20 years. That's because of what's called a statute of limitations. One man is trying to change that. He was a survivor of rape at the hands of a church leader. But because he suppressed the crime for so many years, his case has never been heard before a jury. I spoke with him earlier this week. I was supposed to hang out with priests after church one day. Uh, during that service, uh, he gave me an enormous amount of wine to drink. Chris Graham's life was about to change forever because of what he says happened to him inside this church 24 years ago. He raped me. And uh, after the rape, he asked me if I wanted to the same act on him. I said no, and I ran. Graham was 14 years old, and like most survivors, he says he erased it from his memory. I can't remember ever thinking about it ever again. But during the pandemic, he says the crime began to resurface in his mind. It was during several therapy sessions that he recalled how now deceased Reverend Raymond Lavelle did to him. The Roman Catholic Diocese admits he was credibly accused, but justice was too late for Chris Graham. I had until I was 30 years old to come forward. Um, And you came forward at what age? 39. No, 38. In Ohio, civil cases involving children of rape expire after they reach 30 years old. In criminal cases, it's 20 years after the crime. In Graham's case, police investigated and found a woman to corroborate his crime thanks to memories he says came during those therapy sessions. She recalled, quote, seeing a young teen poorly dressed running out of the changing room, said the police report. And she corroborated my story. Um, She witnessed this man assault me in the social hall. Now Graham is sharing his painful story with lawmakers in hope of changing Ohio law. The gold standard is no statute of limitations. There are many states that have no statute of limitations on rape. Graham believes it's time for Ohio to follow. I think there's an opportunity for our politicians to be heroes here. They could go out and save children's lives. Graham is not alone in his pursuit of changing Ohio law. So are survivors of former OSU doctor Richard Strauss. 300 people who Dr. Strauss hurt have lost the ability to sue because a judge ruled last month the statute of limitations had run out. The state announced the largest human trafficking bust in Ohio's history. More than 200 people were arrested. Ten missing kids were rescued. It was called Operation Ohio Knows. Crime Tracker 10 reporter Lacey Crisp tagged along as officers made the arrests. More than 200 people were arrested statewide as a part of the human trafficking operation called Ohio Knows. One of those who was arrested is a Columbus firefighter. It starts with an ad, then a text or a call. It ends with the Johns in handcuffs. This man who explains he's a plumber has been arrested in the past for buying sex. 
been going to therapy and that, but the wife and I, I mean, we haven't had sex in like two years. I've been going to uh, Sexaholics Anonymous trying to get help, but to that or just, you know, I can't. The Central Ohio Human Trafficking Task Force made several arrests during the week-long operation called Ohio Knows. Of the arrests we've had so far, I believe three of them had prior arrest or warrants for solicitation. They asked all who were arrested to talk to a crisis intervention specialist who also works with the HOPE Task Force. They wanted to learn why the men made the decision to buy sex. And this is allowing us to kind of like take a step back and seeing what's causing these behaviors. Predators aren't necessarily the boogeyman. It just might be you know, your pharmacist, a council member, uh, somebody who, who you might trust in the community. In Westerville, police arrested a Catholic school teacher. The diocese said in a statement music teacher Randall Frazier was immediately suspended, then terminated. The Franklin County Sheriff's Office arrested three men who believed they were meeting a 15-year-old girl for sex. One arrived in a hardware store home service vehicle. 90 agencies statewide focused on Johns during the operation, the largest in the state's history. And if there's no market, if there are no buyers, there will be no trafficking. And Attorney General Dave Yo says he would like to create a public database for those who are arrested trying to buy sex. He says maybe a little public humiliation would be a good deterrent. In Columbus, Lacey Chris, 10TV News. Just last month, Columbus City Council passed a new law to address human trafficking issues. City Council added higher fines and even jail time for those who are accused of buying or selling sex. That new law goes into effect at the end of the month. State lawmakers are looking at a bill that would help victims of human trafficking. Senate Bill 183 aims to help women who have been forced into prostitution against their will. The measure would allow these victims to have, have their part in past criminal records involving human trafficking erased. That helps them get a job, housing or education keep you posted on the progress of that bill. If you've been to the BMV lately, you may have noticed it will take a few weeks to get a driver's exam scheduled. A viewer sent us a question about that issue to verify wait times. 10TV's Lindsay Mills took that question to the registrar. After being closed for months at the beginning of the pandemic, the BMV faced a backlog for scheduling driver's exams. We recently heard from viewer Greg Chastet, who writes, driver exams in Ohio are scheduled out a month and some counties stopped offering them. When will each county go back to testing? The questions will verify for Greg. Is it true those exams are scheduled out a month? And have some places stopped offering them? Our sources, the Ohio BMV and Registrar Charlie Norman. According to a BMV spokesperson, the typical wait time for a test has always been around three weeks. And that's sort of been the case for quite a while, irrespective of the pandemic. You don't need to go to the station located in your county. You can go anywhere in the state to maximize your time and convenience. According to the BMV, there are only three driver exam stations out of 46 in the state that are temporarily closed. Officials say it's due to staffing issues. BMV is, is, is not immune from the same labor shortages and staffing challenges that 
you know, every other industry sector is experiencing right now. So we can verify, yes, there is a wait time for driver's exams of about three weeks. And yes, some exam stations are temporarily closed. And the new update is that we've switched to an online driver exam scheduling tool. Um, you can find that at bmv.ohio.gov. Uh, it's quicker, much more convenient than, than calling in and waiting on the phone to speak with somebody to, to schedule a test. Have something you'd like us to verify? Send us an email to verify at 10tv.com. With your verify, I'm Lindsay Mills. There are three more members of the Ohio Civil Rights Hall of Fame. Hear what Congresswoman Joyce Beatty had to say about the induction of her late husband. Governor Mike DeWine spent a couple of days in Texas to see what he was doing there with 10 other GOP governors. We'll be right back. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma. Not at birth. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. Eleven million people in the United States have macular degeneration. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Kevin Landers, courtesy of 10TV. And welcome back. Early voting is now underway in Ohio. Secretary of State Frank LaRose says this is an election you need to pay attention to. There's important issues on the ballot coming up this November, including you know, school board races. Right here in central Ohio, there's a congressional race. A lot of things that really matter for your community. Let's take a closer look at some of the issues on the ballot involving schools. Reynoldsburg is asking voters to approve a bond issue that would build a replacement for the district's 153-year-old Hannah Ashton Middle School. Madison Plains Local Schools has a levy back on the ballot after it failed in the May primary. Coshocton County Career Center has a levy on the ballot that would allow money to be used to help build a new career center after the state funding was frozen in 2019. This week, you can vote early in person Tuesday through Friday, starting at 8 in the morning. You can also send in an absentee ballot. You can find your voting location online. We have a link at 10tv.com slash featured links. Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley now has the support of the Baptist Ministerial Alliance of Columbus. Whaley is one of several people campaigning to be Ohio's next governor. The Baptist Ministerial Alliance of Columbus endorsed Whaley, saying she will, quote, strive to ensure that every family in Ohio has the opportunity to succeed and live up to their God-given potential, end quote. John Cranley is another Democrat who's running for governor. On the Republican side, Governor Mike DeWine is running for re-election. He's up against Central Ohio farmer and business owner Joe Blystone and former U.S. Congressman and former U.S. Senate candidate Jim Renacci. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine spent time in Texas. He met with the National Guard, who've been deployed for nearly a year there. Saying to all the families uh, of members of the National Guard who might be watching this, thank you. Uh, it's been a long year, I'm sure, for you. But we appreciate uh, your sacrifice. We appreciate the men and women who are down here uh, making a difference at the southern border. Currently, there are 113 Ohio National Guard members in Texas. DeWine was just one of 11 GOP governors to visit the U.S.-Mexico border. They wanted to draw attention to what they call a, quote, crisis at the border. This follows their calls for a meeting with President Biden about border issues and the recent influx of migrants trying to cross in to the United States.
Well, three new inductees are now into the Ohio Civil Rights Hall of Fame. Our Tracy Townsend was the mistress of ceremonies for the induction. Columbus inventor Granville T. Woods, Dayton activist W.S. McIntosh, and former Representative Otto Beatty Jr. were all inducted posthumously. Congresswoman Joyce Beatty accepted the honor on behalf of her late husband. These are Ohio giants. And so we must continue to be in the fight, in the fight for every one of these Hall of Fame recipients. My dear Otto would say, continue to fight for the right to vote. Beatty went on to call on Congress to pass the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act. Thank you all for being here with us today. And remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Kevin Landers, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. We don't want you on our team. You're too slow and fat. This is weight bias. I'm worried about your weight. Don't you care what other people think? Millions who live and are affected by obesity face weight bias every day. You're not the right fit for this job. Unfair judgment by others. Just stop eating so much and exercise some. You lose all this weight. These people often blame themselves. It's just me. Nobody likes me. I do exercise and eat right. And I talk to my doctor. Weight bias hurts. Everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. Your words and actions matter. Let's stop weight bias. Let's work together. Be part of the solution. Go to StopWeightBias.com and learn more. A public service message from Obesity Action Coalition. Each year, Ohioans are injured and killed in train car accidents that could have been avoided with properly functioning gates and flashing lights. Facts show that gates and lights together prevent more train car accidents than stop signs or crossbucks alone. How can you help? Approach all crossings with caution and report bad railroad crossings at angelsontrack.org. That's angelsontrack.org. Because bad crossings kill good drivers. Sponsored by Angels on Track, aired by OAB and this station. When times get dark, we can't see the help that's all around us. Maybe you're not sure how you'll make rent or you lost your job. When you don't know where to turn, let 211 be your guiding light. Our guides are ready to connect you with the help you need. 211, how can I help you? Call or visit 211.org. 211, get connected, get help. A message from United Way and the Ad Council. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen. For late nights writing English papers. For your teen's music taste. For dinners, where they talk more on their phone than with you. For the first time, they call you mom. You're never completely ready to adopt a teen, and you can't imagine the reward. To learn more about adopting a teen, visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. 
Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Richard Meyer. He's the vice president of the American Gas Association. Thanks for talking to us today. We've been hearing a lot about natural gas uh, costs skyrocketing, especially in Europe, but also happening here. Can you tell us what's going on? Well, first, the U.S. is in a, a very strong position with regards to our supplies and the infrastructure to move natural gas from where it's produced to where it's used. So the situation in the U.S. is certainly playing out differently than uh, what we're seeing in Europe and Asia, where they're seeing a very tight market and, and higher prices. But here at home, what's happening? Well, first, what we're seeing is that the economy is growing again, and that's good news. People are going back to work. People are uh, getting out and about, going to restaurants, getting back to life. And when we do that, we use more energy. And because natural gas serves about a third of our overall energy use in the United States, uh, that means we're using more natural gas. So right now what we're seeing is more natural gas demanded for, for all of those uses to heat and power our homes and businesses. But also what's happening is production is growing, but it's not quite growing as quickly as uh, demand has been growing. Part of that is due to the, the enduring market effects of the pandemic itself. So demand growing, but growing a little bit more quickly than supplies. So what's happening is that prices are going up. And really, because we have a, we have a market in this country, the market is signaling that we need more supplies. Uh, and we need more supplies uh, to come online as we head into this winter heating season. And from what I understand, it doesn't have anything to do with a shortage, a lack of natural gas. It's simply the amount that has been brought out of the ground. Correct. Uh, we have uh, one indicator we can look at is underground storage inventories. There are caverns located all across the country that store natural gas for seasonal use. We, in, we inject gas into storage during the summer and withdraw it during the winter. Those storage inventories have been building. And in many areas, particularly those that are serving winter heating demand, those have been growing uh, pretty steadily. But they are below average. And again, that's par partly due to the, the supply and the, the demand balances that I talked about earlier. So the, the U.S. has a robust portfolio of supplies. It includes uh, production that happens every day, those underground storage inventories, even pipeline imports from Canada. And uh, when I step back and look at the supply picture, uh, the U.S. is in a very strong position headed into the winter heating season. Talking with Richard Meyer, vice president of the American Gas Association, what does this mean for prices in the wintertime? Well, with, with prices going up, this can impact customer bills. But there's a few things we need to keep in mind. One, uh, a short-term price increase does not necessarily lead to a longer-term uh, price impact on your bill. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Utilities, uh, natural gas utilities, those, those local companies that deliver natural gas, they have a range of, of different strategies to buy natural gas with both long-term, medium-term, and short-term contracts. They also have a, a range of physical and financial mechanisms that ensure gas is available on those days customers need it most. So they utilize physical assets like underground storage that I was just referring to. But they also have those financial tools. They, they, they have uh, uh, hedging mechanisms and, and other ability to help protect customers from market volatility. And of course, prices are just one part of your bill. Uh, a, a key uh, uh, driver or winter heating bill will be 
the weather itself. And if we're in t-shirts through uh, December, that your, your bill is going to look a little different than if we get a cold snap early on in this winter heating season. So those are key drivers, but uh, I, I would say that the uh, at the end of the day, every utility and market is different. Those local market conditions, weather, geography, they, deter, they determine those gas procurement strategies, but gas utilities do use those range of tools to help protect their customers every year. I've seen some articles that have told folks to not be surprised if prices are 30% higher this winter. Is that a possibility? In terms of bills, well, that is always a possibility. And again, that is a function of weather, uh, local market conditions and prices. And, and of course, prices have increased. Now, if we're looking at changes from year to year, if we go back to 2020, remember that prices, natural gas prices and all energy prices were very, very low. They were in the doldrums because we were in the midst of, of a pandemic. The economy was contracting. People were not out and about, not using energy. And so prices really collapsed. So we're, we're really starting from a really low baseline when we're comparing 2021 to last year, which really was an exceptional year, of course. The market prices are as high as they've been in, I guess, seven years. You know, one of the reasons, uh, from what I understand, is that there are fewer active wells being drilled. They're existing wells, but they're not being utilized. Is that going to ramp up in the next year? It's a great question. And many market observers, such as myself, are wondering, what do these price increases mean for producer behavior? Now, there are companies that uh, make capital decisions to uh, to drill for, uh, to explore and drill for wells. And right now, the, that activity has been, um, in some places in the country, relatively flat, despite rising prices. And the reason for that is uh, announced discipline. These companies coming, again, off of uh, really the roiling energy markets of, of, of the pandemic and, and low prices, announced that they were going to be more disciplined this year. And they appear to have stuck to their guns, but those announcements came earlier in the year in a, a while a higher pricing environment, much lower than we are today. So my question is, will will producers continue to um, stick to that, or will they change their plans uh, given the different pricing environment we're in today? And as I said, this is a market. When prices go up, that is a signal from the market to bring on more supplies. So let's see what happens. And it's more complicated these days because we've become an exporter of natural gas, which is complicated to do. But when the world begins to depend on it, then you've got a a higher responsibility. There is certainly more pull from exports. And now the the U.S. has become a significant exporter of natural gas, uh, really through two channels. One, uh, we uh, we pipe natural gas uh, south of the border to Mexico, where Mexico uses it for uh, primarily uh, power generation as well as other end uses. And increasingly, uh, the U.S. has been exporting natural gas via liquefied natural gas terminals. So these are facilities that super cool natural gas, uh, turn it into a liquid, load it onto tankers, and then send it to overseas markets. And that market has been very strong. However, it is also capped. We only have so much capacity in the country today to export. So despite the market pull from, say, Europe and Asia that are that are hungry for gas supplies, they, the, the U.S. will be part of that mix, but we, 
there isn't an un unlimited amount that we can simply export overseas or even to Mexico. There, there are caps to that. So, so there is a, a, a ceiling there, if you will, in terms of how much demand pull from, from exports will influence the market this winter. Just a moment or two to go with Richard Meyer from the American Gas Association. What about folks, uh, if, if bills do escalate and they're having trouble making those payments, uh, is there help available? Absolutely. Uh, natural gas utilities have flexible payment plans and access to funds for customers in need. If you have trouble paying your bill, contact your local utility. Find out what kind of energy assistance programs there are. There may be a range of opportunities for you. There's also uh, those different payment plans where you can uh, lock in potentially a rate that is below uh, a market rate that, that might have uh, be influenced by higher market prices. So it depends on what every area, every utility is different, but check with your local utility to make sure uh, you're taking advantage of all the options available to you. And quickly, uh, the best tips for conserving? You bet. Make sure you change your furnace filter uh, as recommended. Uh, a clean filter helps the furnace operate more efficiently. You can dial back your thermostat a few degrees at night or when you're not home, and that's a great way to serve, conserve energy during this uh, winter. And also, open the curtains or blinds to heat your home during the day. Bring in that natural solar energy, heat your home. That can help reduce your uh, natural gas load as well. Okay, and a website folks can go to for more info? Absolutely. Uh, AGA's website, www.aga.org. Richard Meyer, Vice President, American Gas Association. Thanks so much for your time today. Great to talk to you. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.